0: listening to the Sports Daily. I'm your host, Reality Steve. Thank you all for tuning in. Good Wednesday show for you. We're going to talk about the two most recent signings in the NFL. Two running backs off the board have joined their new teams, have signed contracts at least, joining their new teams. One has joined the new team. One is about a week away from joining. Kyrie Irving has a reaction to what happened to James Harden and kind of stepping in it again, doing what Kyrie does. I want to talk a little bit more about the Johnny Manziel doc from Netflix. One point that's been brought up to me a couple times by readers, and I want to address it because I do agree with what people are saying. Also, an interesting stat regarding the Atlanta Braves, who have the best record in all of baseball. Two actually interesting stats uh, regarding them. One involving one of the players and one involving their team. And then also, maybe I'll include this in every sports daily as we head up to the football season, I've got a gambling statistic for you, and it involves week one of the NFL season. This is one you probably want to pay attention to and maybe even write down for future reference on that first Sunday in the NFL, September 10th. Anyway, we'll get to that momentarily. All right, let's talk about the two signings in the NFL. We've talked for the last few weeks about running backs. You know how I feel. You know how the NFL feels about running backs. They're basically being replaced Nobody wants to give them, not necessarily give them a a contract or give them a lot of money, just they don't want to lock them up for years and years and give them a giant signing bonus. It's just never going to happen. Ezekiel Elliott, when he was with the Dallas Cowboys, signed a six-year, $90 million contract after year two. That included a $7,500 signing bonus and $50 million guaranteed. There is not a running back unless the sport literally changes and they say, you're only allowed to throw the ball 25 times a game or something stupid. No running back in the history of the NFL is ever going to get a signing bonus like that ever again. It's not even going to be... I don't even think a running back is going to get half that in a signing bonus. He got $50 million guaranteed back, I believe, four years ago, maybe five. Never going to happen again. Regardless... He has off the board. He has signed a contract with the New England Patriots. He has reported to the Patriots. Would they give him $3 million base salary, $1 million signing bonus, and incentives, it can end up being worth $6 million. Yeah, <laughs> pretty much. Guy's been in the NFL six years, and he's gotten a $3 million contract. Now, Ezekiel Elliott's average rushing yards have dropped every single season since his rookie season. So his he's always been trending down, and his statistics prove it. But he also is a guy that if you're inside the five-yard line, he's going to get you touchdowns. So while people think, oh, he sucks and he's not any good anymore, look, he's not going to the Patriots to carry the ball 25 to 30 times a game. He is going to be a third down and probably short yardage back inside the five-yard line and third and fourth and one. That's what he's good for. If... Some of the other running backs get hurt. Can he be a number one running back? Sure, but you're not going to give him more than probably 12 to 15 carries a game. So that makes sense to me, Ezekiel Elliott. Dalvin Cook, who was let go by the Minnesota Vikings after having a great career with them, and he's only been in the league, what, five or six years? I don't even know if it's been that much. He signed a five-year, $63 million contract with the Vikings that had a $15 million signing bonus and $28 million guaranteed. Back in I don't know what year it was 2017, 2018. Anyway, he signs a one-year deal with the New York Jets, and the contract is worth up to 8.6 million dollars. I mean, this is this is what top running backs are going to be getting. Maybe you get a one or two-year deal with an average salary of between nine and eleven million dollars a year. That's that's going to be the best you're looking at, and it almost makes you think about, well, what about running backs who are great in college? What about the best? I don't know who the best running back in college is going to be this year. Probably Travion Henderson, the biggest name. But I'm sure there's going to be some, you know, Pac-12 or Big 12 running back that has a great year and almost rushes for, you know, 2,000 yards or whatever. It's going to come out of nowhere. We see this every season. But if you're a good to great college running back and putting up numbers – Where's your excitement about going to the NFL anymore? Because nobody's picking you in the top 10. Nobody's probably picking you in the top 20. I mean, you're lucky if teams are going to draft a a running back in the first round now. So it's almost like if you play running back, and even if you're, I don't know, the top running back in high school right now, and the top running back in the nation, and you're looking to decide on where to go to college, if you're really looking to your future, do you even want to play the position anymore and if you do choose a college you might want to choose a college that says hey i just don't want to be handed the ball 20 to 25 times a game because that's not going to happen at the next level if you are a running back in high school right now or even a college running back that's one of the top ones you have to learn to catch the ball out of the backfield you have to be a good pass blocker you have to read blitzes correctly, and you have to be able to catch the ball out of the backfield and make guys miss in open space. If you're just a guy that gets the ball 20 to 25 times a game and runs in between the tackles, you have no future in the NFL. None. You have to have more to your game. It's kind of like when we've talked about basketball and the NBA and about how that game has changed. If you can't shoot outside of three feet, You are a liability in the NBA. And when you get in the game, you might be able to get some minutes, but you're never going to be an important part of that cog on that team, especially someone you're probably not going to be in at the end of any game unless it's a blowout. I'm saying a playoff game, like a game that means something, a playoff game. If you can't score, you become a liability and it becomes four on five. The other team can defend you a lot easier if you have one player on your offense that can't shoot. So if you can't hit a... Free throw line jumper, free throw line extended jumper, or you make a three pointer in the NBA anymore, you're basically limited into how many minutes a team is going to give you. So just keep that in mind. The same is going for running backs right now. You gotta be multifaceted. And Dalvin Cook on the Jets, let's see how this experiment goes. The Jets certainly are throwing all their chips in right now. I mean, you go out and you get Aaron Rodgers. You got the returning defensive rookie of the year. You got the returning offensive rookie of the year. In Sauce Gardner and Garrett Wilson, respectively. Now you bring in Dalvin Cook. If the Jets don't, I don't know, make the playoffs, I think it might be considered a failure, considering, yes, I understand they have no history of the playoffs. They've had one winning season since 2011. We've talked about that. Their over-under win total is nine and a half. I'm still looking under because I just don't know how good this team is going to be. Um, uh, they they will be an experiment. Like if they won ten games, if they did finish ten and seven or even eleven and six, I'm not going to be like, oh my gosh, I can't believe that happened. No, I wouldn't. They certainly have the pieces in place. I just told you. Now they have a quarterback in Aaron Rodgers, a running back in Dalvin Cook, and a receiver in Garrett Wilson. That is a great threesome to have. But they're in a tough division. They also play in the AFC, which is easy, easily the tougher conference. So. A lot of things can happen. The AFC just might all just beat up on each other, and no one wins more than 11 games, and no one goes better than 11 and 6. I don't know, but AFC is so tough top to bottom that a team that doesn't have a winning culture and has one winning season in 11 years, I think it's going to be tough to win 10 games for them. Basketball note we talked about yesterday James Harden basically called the president of the Philadelphia 76ers a liar and says he would never play for him uh, because he's a liar. And Adrian Wojnarowski reported it, put it on his Twitter, and the title of his tweet said, Disgruntled Harden calls 76ers Prez Mori a liar, to which Kyrie Irving had to chime in and subtweet him and say, Is he disgruntled, Adrian? Or is he holding Daryl Morey accountable for his dishonesty and lack of transparency throughout the contract negotiation process this summer? Okay, Kyrie, this isn't your battle. Why are you chiming in? Now, this has nothing to do with the Mavericks, but it's once again, this is Kyrie being Kyrie. Is he disgruntled, Adrian? Well, I don't know, Kyrie. Have you looked up the definition of the word disgruntled in the dictionary? Disgruntled means angry or dissatisfied. I would say James Harden calling the president of the team that's writing his paychecks a liar. I don't think that means James Harden's in a good mood. I don't think that means he's happy with the 76ers or Daryl Morey. He's clearly angry or dissatisfied. Is that fair? So why is Kyrie chiming in saying, oh, Adrian, oh, he's disgruntled now? Yeah, he is, Kyrie. Shut up. It's not even your teammate. What do you care like this is this is what I this is Kyrie. This is his thing. He just has to chirp about everything. And frankly, he's wrong in this situation. You know, this has nothing to do like I said. It has nothing to do with the Mavericks. Seemingly he's on good terms with the people there. We haven't heard anything differently here in Dallas just yet. I'm just telling you I don't think he plays 3 years with the Mavericks. He is going to Kyrie at some point and all of a sudden there's going to be friction within the locker room and Kyrie I, I guarantee and I guarantee it will surround the fact about Luca having the ball too much and it's just hard for them to play together. I've said it since he got here. The statistics bared it out. Yes, it was a short sample size last year after they traded for him but they were an under 500 team with Luca and Kyrie on the floor. They don't play well together for me for me. They're not this they're two players that need the ball almost at all times. And when Luca has the ball and is doing his thing, Kyrie is just standing and waiting. He's never being, they're not setting picks for him. He's not coming off a pick to catch a pass from Luca. He's just standing. And when Kyrie has the ball, the same with Luca. It's the same thing. It's the same offense I've seen. And Luca donches for as great as he is, he's not a guy that's ever coming off picks. And he's not a guy that's ever moving without the ball. If he doesn't have the ball in his hands, he's resting on offense. I just I don't see how this works long term. And I think Kyrie will be the first one to speak up and say something because that's what he's done everywhere he's gone. But this tweet yesterday, just so stupid of him. Questioning whether Agent Warjanowski should use the word disgruntled in his tweets, I'd say a guy calling the president of his team a liar says he's disgruntled. Because it certainly doesn't mean he's happy. Just Kyrie, just lay off it. It's not your story. Some of you brought to my attention after I talked about the Netflix show Untold, Johnny Johnny Football, that went over a couple days last week. You mentioned, isn't it kind of ironic that Reggie Bush got his Heisman trophy taken away from him because an agent paid for his family's house and paid for a car and it was found out and he had to lose his Heisman and give it up and USC had to lose games? Yet we now know that Johnny Manziel was literally being given hundreds of thousands of dollars in cash under the table. He was actually flaunting it in social media posts, and he got suspended for one half of the first game of the season against Rice, and nothing's happened to Texas A&M since. You're right. It isn't fair. Now, I wouldn't go back and penalize Texas A&M. I think that would be stupid. But... I think it's definitely fair to say, can you give Reggie Bush his Heisman back? Because what he did is no different than what Johnny Manziel did. Other than Manziel got to keep it for himself. At least Bush provided for his family, or agents did. When you win the Heisman Trophy, two Heismans are made. You get to keep a Heisman, yourself, personally, and then a replica Heisman goes to your school to put in their trophy case. Reggie Bush had to return his Heisman after all this went down. And he's basically been shunned from everything USC related. They had to lose games, but that's just stupid. I mean, the games were played on the field. They won the games. If you want to take them out of the record and say every game that Reggie Bush played in is now a loss by USC. Great. Go do that. Nobody's going to look back on the teams that Reggie Bush played for and be like, wow, they went 0-13 that year. No, they actually won the national fucking championship. Nobody cares that you take away your wins. It's so stupid. I hate when the NCAA does that. It's so lame. But you can at least give the guy's Heisman back, right? Because it's very hypocritical to do nothing about Manziel now that this is out there, and he admitted to doing all this stuff, and Reggie Bush admitted to taking money, and agents paid for his family's home down in San Diego and paid for a car from him. Great. Why the NCAA decided to make a... a, A statement out of Reggie Bush is beyond me, considering if they did any sort of digging at any other major school, they'd probably find out the same exact shit was going on. Boosters were paying for people's families' houses and cars and stuff like that. Gifts, vacations, boat trips, whatever. We all know it's been going on for years. Now they can basically just get away with it because it's legal with the NIL deal. But... Yeah, I'd give Reggie his Heisman back. Why not? A couple of Atlanta Braves baseball notes for you. Let's start off with the Braves themselves. Best record in baseball. They won again last night. Second win in a row. They're 7-3 and three in their last 10. They're 77-42 and 42 on the year. 35 games over five hundred. Nobody in baseball has more than 74 wins. And one of the reasons the Braves have been able to do that is because of consistency within their lineup. Up until this two days ago, They had four players, their top four players, their best four players. Ozzie Albies, second baseman, first baseman, Matt Olson, third baseman, Austin Riley, and right fielder Ronald Acuna Jr. Every single one of them had played in every single game this year. You just don't see that in baseball. I mean, you got a bunch of Cal Ripkins now on the Braves. Never a day off for a team that's 35 games under 500 and running away with their division. They still haven't sat any of their top players all season long. That's pretty amazing. Now, Albies ended the streak because he went on the IL the other day with a pulled hamstring. But Matt Olson, Austin Riley, Ronald Acuna Jr. have played in all hundred and seven, 119 games this year. That's pretty impressive and probably a reason why they're 77 and 42. Matt Olson, if Ronald Acuña wasn't having the year that he's having, Matt Olson would be your MVP. You realize right now as we speak, Matt Olson has more home runs than the Braves have losses. He's got 43, Braves have 42 losses. Now, is that going to keep up throughout the rest of the season? Probably not. And when I was thinking about it, I'm like, I'm wonder if that's ever happened before. Has anybody hit more home runs in a season than their team had losses? The first one, obviously you got to look at somebody who hit the most home runs because that'll equal how many you're allowed to have more losses. And the year Barry Bonds hit 73 home runs for the Giants. By the way, did you know Barry Bonds never hit more than 50 home runs in a season? Outside of the year he hit 73. Yeah, sure there wasn't any steroids involved in that. But he hit 73 that year in 2001. They lost 72 games that year. So it has happened before. But when you go back to those Maguire years of 66 when he hit and I don't know 62 and and Sosa had 3 years in a row I believe where he hit over 60 home runs I you know I don't know what the Cubs record was that year but maybe they were uh, maybe he did have more home runs than they had losses but it's a very very rare statistic for sure because outside of that steroid era most guys you know the most home runs they're hitting in a year were you know, mid 50s, you know, A-Rod hit 52 one year, I believe with the Rangers, but the Rangers didn't win 110 games that year, you know, so he didn't definitely, he definitely didn't hit more home runs than the, than the Rangers had wins, but it is an interesting statistic. I mean, we are what, six weeks away from the season ending. We've only got, um, 30, 30, uh, 40, 43. Three games left, 42 games left, 43 for the Braves. They played 119. There's 162. So 43 games left, which basically is about six weeks of games. And can they finish? I mean, Matt Olsen is going to have to hit 60 to 65 home runs for him to finish with more home runs than the Braves have losses. Because you got to figure, I mean, I don't know, at best, you know, who knows? But the Braves is different because they just don't seem to rest their players. What if they go thirty-three and ten the rest of the year and they only have fifty-two losses? Probably not going to happen, but um, it'll be close. Maybe Olson can do it. But that is a that is a crazy, crazy statistic that I did not know about uh, until the other day. And finally. Like I said at the beginning of this podcast, I think I'm going to try and include some sort of gambling statistic for college and pro football in every sports daily up until kickoff for college and pro football season. You know, next weekend is week zero of college football. We got five games next weekend, including Navy Notre Dame in Ireland. Probably won't be a great game. Notre Dame's favored by three touchdowns right now, but and then four other games that are kind of like whatever. But it's college football, so it starts. Five games next weekend, and then the following weekend, which is Labor Day weekend, is the first full slate of games. And then the following week is week one of the NFL, week two of college. So here's a statistic in regards to the NFL, and I can give you four games that fit the criteria in week one of the NFL season. Divisional home dogs in week one. And you say, like, why is that a statistic? Well... It's been very profitable, and they're usually teams that you're probably not going to want to bet on. In fact, when you probably looked at Week One lines, if you have already in the NFL, you're probably not interested in betting on these teams. You're probably interested in the road favorite, and I'm telling you right now, Division One home dogs since 2012 are 15 and two against the spread in Week One. 15 and two against the spread in week run, and we have four of those in week one this season. Four. You've got, hold on, let me get to the week one schedule. So the division home dogs in week one are the Indianapolis Colts getting three and a half at home against Jacksonville. Any average better looks at that line and is like, oh, Jacksonville's only three and a half point road favorites against Indianapolis starting a rookie quarterback and a rookie head coach? Give me Jacksonville. Okay, 15-2 against the spread, division home dogs in week one since 2012. It's a 10-year sample, 17 games. Not saying all of them are going to cover, but there's four instances. That's one of them. The other one, Cleveland Browns, one-point underdog against the Cincinnati Bengals. Now, this game might flip by kickoff because we don't know if Joe Burrow is playing. If Joe Burrow is ruled out for week one, Cleveland's going to be favored, and he can throw that statistic out the window. So just keep that in mind. But if they kick off, this game would fit that statistic because Cleveland would be a home division dog in week one. The other one, well, one of the other two, the Giants getting three and a half at home on Sunday night football against the Cowboys. Again, Giants and Cowboys, divisional rivals, have been for years. It's just a, it's this is a this is what you call a situational bet. You don't care You're not betting teams, you're betting numbers. It's one thing to be successful in gambling is you don't bet teams, you bet numbers. You bet numbers that favor you. And the numbers say to bet a division home dog in week one. It just means that, you know, if you wanted to put a definition as to why division home dogs cover in week one, you could probably just say because they're very familiar with who they play. They play them twice a year. It's the first game of the season. Everyone's working out their kinks. Just give me the points. And the Giants are getting three and a half at home against Dallas. And then the Monday night game, Buffalo laying one and a half at the Jets. And we know Monday night football, first Monday night football game of the year, Aaron Rodgers debut in New York. Crowd's going to be fired up. Yes, they're going up against Buffalo. But did you see how Buffalo played on the road sometimes last year? they are no world leaders. So. Those are four instances. We are going to look at that. Uh, obviously, I keep an eye on that Cincinnati-Cleveland line because if Burrow doesn't play, Cleveland will definitely be favored by kickoff. But I'm curious to see does the pattern keep up. I mean, if it goes two and two in those four games, then that really didn't kind of stick with the 15 and two in the last 10 years. Um, so going by those numbers, you would think three and one or four and zero. Oh, you know and for the most part if you're going to bet those dogs you probably want to bet them on the money line too you know to win as well but this is just straight against the spread and the number is i mean if you want to do it if you want to go back just to 2018 they're 7 and 0 since 2018 division home dogs in week 1 they're 15 and 2 since 2012 and 21 and 5 against the spread since 2009 so Last 13 years, 21 and five last 10 years, 15 and two, the last five years, seven and zero. so, um, I'll try and remember that one before we head into week one, because we're still, you know, three and a half weeks out from week one of NFL season, but I'll try and remind you, uh, at the time, and when that comes about, because I think that's a pretty, that's a pretty solid statistic. And, you know, when anytime two division teams play in the NFL, there's just there's no such thing as an upset. These teams play each other twice every year like they know the other team's tendencies by now. And winning on the road in the division is I don't want to say it's not hard, but it can be done. And you're a home underdog against a team you're familiar with, meaning you're getting points, especially over a field goal at home first game of the year yeah um i, th- I think it's a solid number and I'll, I'll probably be i don't know which one i like more than the others um but i'll probably have all four of those at some at, at some part on my ticket in the first week of nfl season for sure so thank you all for listening i really appreciate it please follow me on apple podcast rate and review if you can as well pass it along to your friends let them know about it and we kind of take it from there because I want this thing to blow up and be as big as we can make it. Thank you all for listening. Again, I really, really appreciate it. And remember, sports will always be the greatest reality show on television.